Uh, we celebrate failure. So if we've if we've had a failure, then you know we'd be first people to sort of jump up and say, "I've really cocked this up." And have always it. passion first. Skills we can teach. Skills you know people can learn. We can we can help around skills. Be brave. Be curious. Because if you're not brave, you won't ever try something new. You won't try anything different. Actually, fail quickly and um, and learn and adapt. We're nothing without the the skills, the talents, and the passion of the people that, that work here. And so, welcome to Sports and Outdoor Mentors. In this episode, I chat to Nick Giles, the Managing Director of Ordnance Survey Leisure. Ordnance Survey is the original map brand that's gone through a digital revolution. I chat with Nick about his life before the outdoor industry, his passion for getting to people outdoors and for driving digital transformation, plus much, much more. We filmed this episode at their busy headquarters, so apologies for the background noise. In addition, we had some issues with my microphone, so the audio was corrupt. So it's not at the usual standard that we like, but there's a lot of value in this episode, so I hope you can bear with us. Before we get into it, I have one favour to ask. Please hit the subscribe or follow button. This helps the channel so that we can continue to elevate the content and bring insights from other great industry leaders. So thanks for your support, and let's enjoy the episode. Nick, so when you look back over your career, what are the, or even over your life, what are the defining factors that led you to where you are today? Probably the biggest defining factor was losing my dad when I was about 21. So he suffered with early onset Alzheimer's um, and he died at 47, which is now I'm older than my dad was when he died. So I had this underlying urge to think, actually, you know, that could be hereditary, that could pass on. How do I maximize my impact, maximize my career in as short a time as possible. So I've always been pretty ambitious, both in terms of what I did pre-outdoor industry, but that's probably the one big defining moment in my life that really focused me in terms of where I wanted to get to and how could I get to where I wanted to get to as quickly as possible. So I've always been trying to architect my own career in terms of my own career development to achieve my ambition, I suppose. So I was 21 when my father died. So yeah, I was just out of university. I was in my first job uh, working for a direct marketing agency in Bristol. And I started as a junior account manager. This is in the days before PCs, yeah. So everything was handwritten on carbon copy paper. It was, uh, it's archaic when you think of it now. You could smoke in the office, for God's sake. It was not, it was not the sort of environment that we, that we, lived in, that we live in now. Um, but that's, uh, that, that sort of first job kind of, really fired me up in terms of actually how do I do how do I do more how do I take on more responsibility how do I um, enable more growth within the organization to give me more responsibility and uh, I rose pretty quickly through that organization um, and that I think mindset and understanding that actually if you if you work hard you're committed you're focused you're passionate about what you do really gets you to where you want to get to so I've tried to carry that passion throughout my life with probably a small exception of falling into financial services, which lines your pockets, but saps your soul. We'll come on to that. Okay. Let's we'll we'll <laughs> not. <laughs> you have a passion for you know, getting people outdoors. And I wondered, I mean, maybe it came from the same thing, but you know, I read that as a kid, you used to love to build dens in the new forest. Um, is that where that, that kind of, desire to be outdoors and spend time outdoors came from? Cool, you've done your research. Well, either that or you've got some very long-standing spies. So, yeah, as a, uh, as a family, we used to get every half term, we used to get to a campsite in the New Forest. It was a pretty basic campsite. And I remember kind of it's, it's that sense of freedom you get when you're camping. And that, that's kind of always sort of stayed with me. It's something I try and do with my kids as often as I possibly can. It's just, you know, you go to that um, very wild place, but you think you've got a load of freedom. Your parents always know really roughly where you are, but you, you kind of go out exploring in woods. And, you know, I remember terrorizing ants' nests and getting bitten all over and crawling through bracken and moving piles of logs to build a den and then, yeah, putting bangers in cow pats and sort of stuff that you do when you're, when you're young. And uh, that's kind of stayed with me, that passion around outdoor activity. And I think it's quite important because there's a whole load of research around this that, that probably a lot of people are aware of. But if you develop that relationship, that healthy relationship with the outdoors before the age of 14, then in most cases, it's between 80 and 90% of cases, that carries through your life. And then you want to recreate that for your kids as well. And that's a lot of what I do today. Um, so that passion around outdoors, outdoors has always been a sort of big part of what I've done. It's sort of a bit of a 
gap during university where most of my outdoors was spent in outdoor bars. Um, but um, that whole engagement with nature, that whole uh, ability to actually sort of interact uh, and, and exercise in nature, be that in water. I was a big water sports fanatic when I was a kid. A lot of windsurfing, not very good now. Um, uh, and a lot, anything that basically got me wet, I swam a lot. So I used to swim for the county when I was 14, 15. Um, and I was spent 27 hours a week in a pool. And that was uh, that, that's always kind of stayed with me in that whole um, physical activity. Physical activity in natural environments was always a, a, a something that just kind of lit my fire. And carrying that on and being able to pass that on to future generations to inspire more people to get outside more often, which is fundamentally what we're all about here and the the, the kind of mission that we've brought into the business um, is just so important, not for not only for us as an organization for the broader outdoor industry but actually for us as a country for society and you know we're, we're a government-owned company government's there supposedly to serve society actually what can we do how do we make a difference as ordnance survey to the health of the nation the future of the nation and, that, and that's something that we take quite seriously here it's it's instilled within the kind of core culture um both in terms of uh, what you know, what we do, the way we do it, the principles that we hold to around, are all based around making outdoor activity sort of more enjoyable, accessible, and safe. And that's fundamentally where we are. You uh, you already mentioned that you spent some time prior to joining the survey in both direct mail business, but also in financial services. So obviously, two very different um, organisations, businesses, to what you do today. Yep. But when you look back at that time, is there anything that you take away from that and actually you're able to kind of put into action today? Well, if you think uh, on, on all accounts, yes. Um, so if you think about sort of direct mail, it's very organized. Direct marketing in general is, is very organized, very measured. So you do something to get an outcome and how do you measure that outcome? Um, so that's certainly something that I, I, I'm still across across the business. If we're doing something, we should be understanding actually how do we, what does success look like? How do we monitor against that? How do we build, learn, refine? Test, learn, refine is kind of the, the, the principles of direct marketing as it, as it stands. So a lot of what we do is around that. Financial services, slightly different. As I say, lines your pocket, saps your soul, but it's... Um, it's uh, it's also an industry that's built around annuity stream income. So if we look at what we have with OS Maps, it's a subscription-based product. So that really helps us in terms of actually understanding how those markets work and building up an insurance book through to actually forging partnerships with other organizations. All of this was kind of done in financial services days. And how do we make those partnerships work for both parties? This is not kind of purely around lining uh, a financial services organization's pockets but it's also around how does that benefit the customer and their customers and so that customer focus understanding around measurement uh, are, are very very valid skills in terms of actually being able to run run a business successfully in in today's age yeah absolutely i think it's interesting because over the last five ten years it's been i would say Customer or client centricity has been almost a bit of a buzzword, but the reality is, it's it's always been the case. It's always been key to, to any successful business to really understand and get to know your customer. And how do you? So how do you do that here? How how do you get to know and understand what your customer is or consuming? So. Uh, wants and needs are, are sort of one thing and you know we do kind of focus quite heavily around that we use silicon valley product group methodology with all of our product development with the way we run the business so principally what that sort of sits what sits at the heart of that is solving customer problems and how do you solve customer problems in the way that works for your business that's the kind of definition of kind of product management there. so we undertake quite a lot of discovery work we'll come up with a concept we'll prototype it we'll in a very very low-fi basis it could be on pieces of paper, it doesn't really matter. And we'll get out in front of customers and really talk to them, really understand where their problems problems are, where their pain points are, and equally where their passions are. And how do we then tailor a product to actually not only resonate from a, a, a personal perspective for that individual customer, and we're dealing with end consumers here, not businesses, but really helps them and helps them in their day-to-day -day lives and their everyday enables them to do something better, to do something simpler. So those principles around real 
what we term as discovery, where you're where you're having those really in-depth con- uh, conversations with customers, and we've done it across our entire range. It's not this is a tech product development methodology, but equally we apply that across our physical product range as well. So if we're creating a guidebook, we would actually go out create a prototype and actually talk to customers get them to use it whereas most authors will just write a book you write a book you send it to your editor the editor edits it they see thousands of books every day kind of blurred by what they see whereas actually putting that into a customer's hands really understanding actually how do they turn the pages what are they looking for what what level of detail um they're 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 taking from that or they need within that product do they get lost on the way i mean that's quite a critical one for us um what, what sort of things interest them along that route? Is it the view? Is it the sights, the sounds, the smells of nature? Is it uh, actually just the sense of accomplishment from climbing a hill? It could be any number of those things. And then, then you work out how do you appeal to those individual elements? And then that gives you something to build on. So that prototype is never done. That, that product is never done. It's how do we then refine it? How do we understand how people are using it? Are they doing what we expected them to do with it? Or are they using it for something completely different? Um, and that then just enables us to get that product to a far better, better cycle. And if you think about OS, that's fundamentally what they've been doing for 230 years. I mean, the first map is is literally just over there, which I'll show you when we finish, Dan. You can take a photo of it, maybe chuck that into this into this video. Um, but the the very first map was mapping was was mapping the coastline of Kent for fear of Napoleon's navy invading. So there's a specific use case there, a specific problem that that map was trying to solve. That that map was trying to solve the French invasion of the UK. It's like, um, we probably would welcome that with open arms at the moment, but um, you know, that, 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 that product was there for a reason. And then that's refined further and further and further into the, the maps that we, we know today, the pink and orange set, the Land Ranger and Explorers, and also our digital products, which have sort of increasing and decreasing depths of data within that, dependent on the problem that people are trying to solve. So it's all got to be rooted in the customer. And if we're not rooted in the customer, then actually we're not serving the people who actually keep this business, keep this brand alive. So in addition to your role here, you're also the chair of the Outdoor Industry Association for the UK. So for that, you're giving up your own time. Um, so why is that important for you? And, and actually, what does that entail, being the chair of that association? Uh, well, as, as chair, I mean, fundamentally, I won't say I do all the work because I don't do all the work. Actually, Andrew Denton does most of the work around the OA, but I'm here to support Andrew. It's a, it's a it's done on a three-year cycle, so I'm year one and a half into a three-year cycle. Unfortunately, because of COVID, we rammed in two of our conferences within a single year, so I've seemed to probably I'm probably more visible than I should be at this point in my tenure. Um, but obviously, we chair the chair the board meetings, making sure that actually we get the right level of input through from the board, making sure that Andrew's supported uh, at times, helping him to unlock certain uh, areas. Um, sounding board uh but really the whole point of the oia is to support the outdoor sector and you know os is a kind of foundational part of any outdoor activity if you if you're going outside you know the first thing you want to really understand is where am i going we're good at the where we can do that and how do we really kind of bring that into and how do we bring the brand very much more into the sector that it supports and the activities that it then sort of leads to and then from the activities you then got the kit and then you've got all of the various sort of other touch points of um of of, of the outdoors so for me it's uh, it was a great honor to be asked to be chair i've been in the board now for about five years um and that's sort of more on the periphery more sort of putting in opinion understanding challenge around sort of where we're going and where where we're supporting the industry uh, whereas in chair you have a little bit more of, of, a, of a steer you're also a sounding board if anybody's got any problems they can come to you and uh, and then it's your job to help sort them out but why what maybe then if we step back to when you were initially uh, on the board what drove you to take that step to to invest your time because you could argue that you know everything you've said anybody in the upper industry could or maybe should want to do that so why you why what kind of drove you to do it from a personal perspective i wanted to give back to an industry that i love uh, an industry that I've grown up with and an industry that I feel is, is a leader in where actually other industries need to go. Think, things like sustainability is no secret that the outdoor sector is leading the way in sustainability and we need to continue to do that. So there's a, 
there was a real strong sort of personal motivation there. And then equally from an organisational perspective, OS has always been kind of on the peripheries of outdoors. We've been members of the OIA pretty much since its founding. But actually, we're not kind of seen as an outdoor brand. Uh, you'll see, you know, you, you, you immediately go to your, your retailers, your, um, uh, your, your clothing manufacturers, clothing brands, who, where people are you know, it's a lot more visible. Whereas actually, that's what we do. We help more people to get outside more often. We show them where to go. We show them how they can get there. Uh, and how do we become part of that industry? And how do we support that industry as a kind of quasi-government company? It's um, to enable them to, to enable the, the, the whole business, the whole sector to flourish. So that was, that was also a motivation for me, sort of within my role, as well as me personally. So with a wife, twins, you already mentioned, two senior leadership roles in the industry, Getting a, a balance between professional and personal life must be tough. Do you have any ways that you manage that, any kind of non-negotiables things that enable you to get that balance? Uh, to be honest, I probably my balance is kind of all over the place. I mean, I, I, I love coming into the office, so that gives me that kind of split between home and work. But equally, I'll always try and get back for kids' tea time and always eat with the kids, have breakfast with the kids every morning. So I'll have breakfast with them before I do the sort of half-hour commute here. Um, and then I'll, I'll try and get back. And maybe that means working a little bit in the evenings. Weekends, try and keep free as possible. But obviously, there's always stuff that comes through. So there's a, there's a balance. But then you have, that's what, we're lucky enough to have sort of good holiday here at OS. Um, so I make sure that I use that holiday really well with the kids. And uh, I'm there pretty much every bedtime. Um, which can be a painful experience. So it's, it's, it's always a balance with these things. You've got to juggle it. It um, swings around about. And it's just, the organization is hugely supportive. Um, even throughout the whole of COVID, the mantra here was family first. And, and that was really instilled from um, Chief Exec, my boss, all the way down. So that is part of the culture. It's quite a familial organization. Yeah, yeah that's great. And are you, are you still maintaining a hybrid approach to work i'm not but that's personal preference but we do as an organization we have um yeah, we have we're fully hybrid and you'll see sort of various people kind of coming and going from the office um try and have as much office time as we can that's where the innovation happens that's where actually people can connect you have the conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think about having when you're just on teams you just pass someone in a corridor you go ah have you thought about x y and z or could we have a chat about this that and the other and it's um that that i find Personally, I, I like that, and that's why I like being in the office. That and just sitting in a room on my own, I find deeply, deeply um, challenging. Uh, I even enjoy the commute, which is a bit sad to say, but my drive's straight through the middle of the New Forest, which is, I can think of a lot worse commutes. <laughs> for sure, for sure. But, and then how do you find, as a leader of people, managing that situation where you've got some people here, some people at home? Because I, at least at the start of this, when I was still in a similar sort of position, I found it quite difficult to get find that right balance. It takes a, it takes a while to get into, and we were we were just um, undertaking this sort of rollout of Teams just before COVID, which was perfect timing. Um, so we were kind of getting used to that whole video conferencing, um, and our, our teams are spread throughout the country. We've got you know our, our people up from sort of North Scotland right the way through to Cornwall. So you know we've got to understand that actually we're looking for the talent regardless of where the talent actually lives and how can they make a contribution. So we've always had remote workers. We've got a remote field team that have been out and about. Our surveyors, as an organization, we've got 350 surveyors that are all field-based, so they're going around sort of surveying the country. So we're kind of used to that remote working. The It's how you make that work for you. And so we'll have, we'll have days. We've got a day tomorrow, for example, where actually we've got most of the team coming in where we'll have uh, you know, a really good deep dive around sort of the whole business and where we're going and what we're, what we're trying to do as we go into planning for next year. So there are times where actually coming together uh, really works. And we use um, heads down, heads, heads up and heads together as a kind of mantra so heads down i'm just getting on with stuff fine do it at home it doesn't really matter where you do it you know heads up actually what am i doing externally are the things that i need people i need to talk to outside of the organization heads together is just that time where you bond where you innovate where you work through problems together and that's the way you can really crack through those as, as, as easily as possible so that kind of that balance between heads up heads down heads together is um is quite important who are the people you would say have most influenced you professionally? Uh, there's a few. Um, uh, I think you, throughout life, you're always learning. You're always picking up you know, different ways of doing things, different 
principles that you can follow. Uh, for me, I've got uh, my very first boss, um, a chap called Brian Potter. He wasn't in Phoenix Lights, but um, he's a musician now. Um, but he really helped me just in terms of actually that that um, focus around you know, work, life. How do you progress? Taught me taught me a really valuable life lesson in terms of actually you don't just expect the next promotion to come. You, you you kind of earn that. You, you you earn that through growth. You earn that through your own initiative. You earn that through being entrepreneurial in what you do. So that's a lesson that's really stood with me. And then equally across financial services, there are a number of really talented people I worked across there, just uh, from everything from approach to negotiations to how do you undertake those in the most effective way? How do you put yourself in different situations and different people's shoes? That's a, that's a skill that I take through today. Very painful skill to actually go through, but um, that really helps in terms of just getting to the crux of what's the job to be done? What's the real problem we're trying to solve? Works across product management as well as, um, as, well as in day-to-day -day life. Um, and um, equally, just the power of brand. I think the power of brand's been quite interesting. I was um, at uh, Liverpool Victoria, uh, the insurance company, before it became LV, when it was kind of Frizzells and Liverpool Victoria. This is going way back when. For those, uh, for those younger, younger viewers, they may not remember that, and fine. Uh, um, but... Uh, that, that was bringing together some really old, traditional, very conservative organizations. How do you make that sort of fit for the future? And a big sort of branding to what LV is now and the LV equals was uh, my old boss actually led on that. And I learned an awful lot from him in terms of actually how do we position ourselves, the marketing activity uh, of an organization, positioning products in the right way, really um, understanding and working alongside customers. So I think you're always learning. And I'm a big advocate for continual learning and um, I, there are so many people that I've learned from because I've made a lot of mistakes in my career um, that actually it just helps helps form you as and who you are. As a leader of an international business what would you say is your most important task as a group? People. Um, we're nothing without the, the skills, the talents and the passion of the people that, that work here. And so my job is to really set a very clear vision in terms of where we want to get to, what we want to achieve, and then actually just empower, um, encourage, um, motivate the team that actually does all the hard work, really. It's, um, they're the people that really solve the customer problems, the people that are really getting to the, the, the detail. And actually, if they're not motivated, um, empowered impassioned around where they're where they're heading then uh, then we're not going to get there I'm, I'm a firm believer that culture will will win over strategy you can have the best strategy in the world but with the worst culture you're not going to deliver it you can have the worst strategy with the best culture you'll probably probably get probably get further um so we're big advocates around culture here across OS and that sort of sits down into our, our values and one of our core values is how we thrive together, how we work together to achieve um, to achieve success and that's very much part of sort of my philosophy in terms of how I work with my team. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you know over your career you've made you know many mistakes I had lots of failures and I think to to empower and engage your team you need to have some sense of the ability to fail, you know, yeah. to fail is okay. So how do you go about kind of fostering that type of atmosphere that people understand that, okay, you know, it's okay to fail? And we celebrate failure. So if we've if we've had a failure, then, you know, we'd be first people to sort of jump up and say, I've really cocked this up and how do I... Uh, and the, the failure is, is one thing, actually, and the failure is, is less important than the lessons you learn from it. So we try and fail quickly because you don't want to fail with something that, that goes on and on and on. Um, but we really kind of look out for people that have actually just tried something new. We've really kind of pushed that entrepreneurial um, piece. That's kind of come from f f financial services again, where um, way back when we had, a, uh, we had a red and yellow card system. And the, the, you got a yellow card for every time you cocked up. You can have as many yellow cards as you possibly wanted. Um, but you got given two at the beginning of the year. And you can play those yellow cards. Say, oh, I've made a mistake. There's a yellow card. I'll play that. It goes on a leaderboard. Uh, who's played the most yellow cards? And if you, if you made the same mistake twice, you got a red card. Uh, so you're learning from your mistakes. Um, if you didn't use all your yellow cards by the end of the year, you got two red cards for each yellow card you had. 
And whoever had the most red cards at the end of the uh, at the end of the year bought the first round of Christmas drinks. So it was a bit of fun, but it actually just engendered that sort of whole culture of actually, if you're going to move forward, you know, the world is changing on a continual basis. Technology is moving at a pace. Every, you know, what what happened sort of even go back to 2020. I mean, nobody really foresaw that. And but the world is a very very different place to how it was sort of pre-COVID. If we don't change, we don't adapt. We're not we're not going to be relevant. And you know, particularly working in a business with a 230 year old legacy, you know, I take that quite seriously. That's a big weight on the shoulders in terms of actually how do you leave this business in a better place than you found it for the next generation. And believe you me, we've got generations of people that work here, fam whole family groups from sort of grandfather down to down to grandson uh, are working in the organisation. Well, I love that uh, red and yellow card. It's great. It's a great little concept. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how it would work here, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it set the set the set the mind going. Yeah. And when you're looking for leaders to join your team, what are the qualities you're looking for? Passion, always passion first. Skills we can teach. Skills, you know, people can learn. We can we can help around skills. But if you haven't got the passion, both in terms of what we're here, what we're here to do, um, our core mission. Uh, helping more people to get outside more often. I'll say that a lot because it's it's kind of ingrained in me to <laughs> to say that a lot. Um, then actually we're not going to succeed. So we're we're really looking for passion. We're looking for experience. We're looking for the um, the skills that would actually help us sort of shift to the next level. Uh, and that can come equally from within as it does from externally. But a passion wins overall. Does it have to be? passion to get people outside or passion for what? Um, it can be passion around what we do. I mean, we got a lot of people that are hugely passionate about maps and have grown up with maps and love maps. And, you know, that's, that, that, that's, a, that's a steerable passion in terms of actually, well, a map's just a piece of paper, effectively. It's what a map gives you. Uh, you know, you're not going to get excited over a piece of paper, but actually you will get excited about the adventures you can have as a result of that piece of paper. So it's thinking about it, okay, from that concept, and then we can turn a map, you know, a map geek into someone who's passionate about the benefits of a map. Um, but overall, it's, it's, it's that sort of real fire in your belly. Um, you know, to quote Yvonne, I'm wearing one of his tops, so I suppose I ought to, but you want, you want your people coming in on a Monday morning, coming up the stairs two at a time. And actually, we have a lot of that here. People really you know, enjoy and love what they do, which is, Partly why actually we've got people that have worked here for 55, 60 years um, because they love it. They love the brand, they love the organization, they love the work, they love the people, and they love actually the purpose that we have that goes alongside the sort of more commercial side of the business. Wow, that's amazing. So 55 years? 55, 60 years, I think, is the longest serving. Um, there we go. So, so not, 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 it, it, it swings around about because at times, you, you know, our, our attrition is very low um, uh, and you've got equally, you also want new talent coming into the business to give you a different perspective. And to also, you get very blinkered in terms of actually, that's just the way things happen. And actually, why do they happen like that? How are we challenging that? And we always encourage any new starter just to ask why a lot. And if they see something that actually isn't great, then be empowered, be, fix it. Um, or at least we can help you find the people that will help you fix it. And how do we make the organization sort of shift and adapt? Because if you're doing the same things for 55 years, you're going to be doing what, what was relevant 55 years ago rather than necessarily what's relevant for today. So in January 2022, you were awarded uh, OBE for service to the, the health of the nation. Is that correct? So for those international audience members, so an OBE is, well, maybe you can explain it. So an OBE, the official title of an OBE is an officer of the most excellent British empire. Um, thankfully, they leave out the words most excellent. So it's an officer of the British empire. So it's part of the honor system here in the UK. Um, anyone can be nominated for an honor and the honors are given sort of across the piece. For me, it was all around the Get Outside Act, um, campaign that we did. We did a big initiative. Um, which is still sort of very much sort of focused around the outdoor sector, which is all around inspiring people to get outside. How do we uh, give them the right content, give them the right sort of uh, data understanding to be able to actually go and have a good time in, in the outdoors? And at, at, at its peak, we were inspiring around about 8 million unique people a year. Um, but it really came into life over COVID. So when we couldn't get outside, ironically, and uh, actually at that point, we pivoted it and we pivoted it to get outside, stay inside. Um, uh, and we, we 
surfaced a whole load of film, outdoor films, content, inspiration. So that actually, when you were sort of released from lockdown, then uh, you, you knew where you would go. But at that time, it was like when you're you sat inside, you're not quite sure what on earth is going on. Like three weeks ago, you were kind of out gallivanting and life was normal and then all of a sudden everything's flipped on its head. So we pivoted that really, really quickly. So we did that in the first week of lockdown um, and, uh, and, and that helped a lot of people just sort of get through that early stage before we got to the point where actually we were allowed out to go for exercise and not just go and get essential supplies from the supermarket and as quickly as you possibly could with everything covered up. Um, so yeah, it was uh, immensely proud of that. And also it was aligned to the OS Maps work. So what we've done within OS Maps, um, it's the UK's leading outdoor navigation application. We've got around about six and a half, seven million um, downloads of the application. We've got half a million people that actually subscribe on, a, on an annual basis to that application. Um, and it, it, it's helping you know, create billions and billions of, uh, of journeys. And that's you know, something that we're equally hugely proud of. Very different for uh, an organization that has grown up with people literally measuring things by hand and crafting maps by hand, which um, still sits in a lot of our cartography today. With your own team, what's your approach to kind of recognizing kind of great work? How do you, yeah, how do you recognize that? Uh, and we're, we're surrounded by great work and we always try and call that out as, as often as possible and as publicly as possible. Sometimes that does lead to a bit of embarrassment, but you know, eventually you, you, you get that sort of sense of pride in terms of I've done something great. So we're always trying to encourage people to do you know, great stuff, great work, do your best work. And um, and we do call that out. We've got a rewards program here as well, so we can incentivize that through our HR team. They can give out a, a voucher, a cash reward, um, which which does help as a kind of thank you. Um, we use that quite, quite often in terms of just saying thank you for a great job. Whether or not that's getting something wrong and learning from it, whether or not that is actually you've delivered something that's going to shift and change the organization for the future. So there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of celebration of success and celebration of failures that, uh, that we try and do sort of across the business. What type of leader are you? How would you describe your, your approach to I'm hugely passionate about getting the best out of the team and actually delivering where we need to get to. Um, I'm collaborative um, to, to the point that actually I, I want as many different opinions as possible. Challenge me, please do. I mean, I've try and encourage people to continually challenge me and tell my tell tell, tell me my ideas part of shit and i'm quite happy with that because actually that just enables us to get things better um so very open non-hierarchical challenging um our challenge as well and, and you know we'll empower people but with empowerment comes accountability and we'll you know we'll, we'll make sure that actually you, know, you understand the accountability that comes with what you're doing but um principally i think it's uh we're at work for too much of our lives and we try and make it as fun as possible. And, you know, what, what, what's not fun about helping people have a great time at the weekend or, you know, in the evenings and getting outside and enjoying, you know, the wonders of this country and the rest of the world. And that's, that's, it should be fun. If we're not having fun, then we're doing something wrong. <laughs> what annoys you? What's that? thing that like, Politics. I don't like politics. Um, uh, you know, we're owned by the government, which, you know, politics is a deep root of that. Um, I think that can, it just, it can send you down a track that actually isn't necessarily a, a helpful track. Um, and it can lead to a huge amount of kind of red tape bureaucracy. And we try and remove as much of that as possible. We're, we're obviously very well governed being run by government. Um, but uh, yeah, politics is not something that I, I can play politics like everybody else but it's not something that really excites me it does yeah can get you back up at times but not a lot to be quite honest I'm generally pretty relaxed and uh, yeah I let it wash over me quite easily but <laughs> at times that can be a challenge yeah, yeah I and that is how many employees so we've got 1400 just over 1400 employees here but um so within the consumer business there's around about just over 100 uh, mostly developers uh, who are um, coding and uh, and working on sort of digital products, but we touch the broader organisation. So the broader organisation of fourteen hundred people will be creating the maps that we then turn into a consumer product. Um, so it's it's a, it's it's quite a it's, it's a solid networked organisation, and we 
have to leverage that network to, to get what we need to be able to serve our customers in the best way. Have you ever worked with a, a coach or a mentor? And, and if so, what kind of drove you to that decision? So yeah, I've had coaches and mentors sort of throughout my career. Um, early career, it was much more on a mentor basis. Now I've got a, I've got a coach that I still use and call upon from time to time. And uh, it's kind of there if, I, there if I need and we can talk through a problem and we can try and... Well, he, he won't give me the solution, but he'll try and help me to come up with the right solution for that problem. Um, I think it's really important. You can't do everything yourself. And, and actually, even now, when I mentor other people, I get just as much back from that relationship from a kind of reverse mentoring perspective because you get different perspectives, you've got different generations. You know, I'm 50 now. I'm, I always think of myself as a young one. I, that was a bit of a wake-up call. It was like, how did that happen? Because I'm still like 14 in my head at times. But actually, you don't get that. You get a much broader perspective. So I'm a big believer in that. And we've got mental programs that run throughout the, the organization, which is... Um, which is a key part. And we also help develop coaches. So a couple of my team are going through a coaching um, apprenticeship at the moment to, to get to a, I think it's a level six coach, which uh, hopefully they'll be able to coach me in the future. Oh, so yeah. Uh, that's really good. So investing in that as well. Yep. I think it is, it is key. I think that coaching, mentoring, also that having that approach to leadership as well, I think is, is more and more relevant in this day and age, especially younger generation you're never going to have all the answers and actually you know you're never going to see things from the same perspective as somebody else with different life experiences with different from a different culture background upbringing and and actually having that broader perspective because our customers are hugely diverse how do we actually really understand their customers without different perspectives coming through so we already touched a little bit on this but let's go a little bit more specific so we talked about failure earlier on so if you had to look back at your professional career what would you say has been your biggest failure and what did you learn from it and how did you handle it at the time? God, I've had so many. It's like <laughs> I can go back to last week, <laughs> let alone going back sort of 30 years. Um, some of my earlier failures was actually just really learning that failure is okay and that actually by trying new things, you can uncover some great stuff. And, you know, there's some things that actually should have failed that didn't and turned into a be pretty successful but you learn from all of those you learn from your successes as well as your failures so um i've had some real hideous situations but i've put a phone number on for a local taxi firm on a direct market piece of direct marketing literature that went out to about three million people that was a bit of a cock-up um i wasn't very popular with that taxi firm who had to change their number um so you can imagine that that's that's a sort of little one through to actually you know we've had we've had some things that we've tried through here that haven't necessarily worked for whatever reason and you know you you take the learnings and what we try to do is just keep a real good tight log of what we've learned as a result of those failures because the failure is not as important, as I said earlier, than the learnings you get from it. But actually being able to impart those learnings onto somebody else so they don't make the same mistake you did is equally important. It's not something you keep to yourself. It's something that you share across the organization. So we actually have a, a central register of all of the things, that the learnings that we've, that we've got from the failures we have had. And, you know, we've had some big ones and some little ones and that all kind of goes into the same place, but it helps you. And it helps you just think through if, especially if you come up with a new concept or you're, you're trying something that is a little bit more radical, actually, where are the pitfalls? Where am I going to go? So we run a pre-mortem process. So before we do any kind of development work or we do any sort of embark on any big project, we'll run a pre-mortem, which kind of looks at it and saying, okay, so what could go wrong? And where are the, th where are the pitfalls that we need to kind of understand to be able to overcome them to achieve success? So that, that works really well. And then at the end of everything, we do a post-mortem. What are the things that we did that were good? What are the things that we did that actually we could do better next time? So that's kind of instilled throughout the organization. It's, it's continual learning, iteration, redevelopment, pivoting in terms of where we need to go. What about how do you personally deal with it? You know, is there something where you, know, you have to go and... I, I, of course, it depends on the, the level and the size of the, the topic, but do you have to kind of go away and sit in a cold, dark room or, or drink heavily one night? Or... <laughs> probably, I've tried, probably I've tried all of the above. Um, uh, for me, um, I like a bit of time to just quietly reflect. I might go for a long walk. Um, uh, I try and, you know, it can, be, it can feel personal if you make a mistake. It can feel something like, you know, I've not. Nobody wants to, nobody sets out to fail. Um, and, you know, you kind of have to remind yourself that you didn't, that wasn't, the, 
what you set out to do, but it, it, things happen and the world changes, the world evolves, opinions change, data can change. Try and make as, you know, as well-informed decisions as, as you possibly can, but you're never going to get them all right. So you know, if there's something that I really want to think through, I find a long walk and I'll either go out on a long walk on my own or I'll go out with you know, a, a colleague or a coach and just talk it through. And getting it, talking it through and getting it out in the open and even just processing it in your head first can really help just to you know, re-ground you because yeah, I think you're never going to get everything right. I love that I've, I've got a mug somewhere that says I eat failure for breakfast and it's like you've got to make mistakes um, all the time uh, and it's the only way we're going to learn. Think about early, I remember doing spelling tests with my kids over the they have a spelling test every Monday and start the week, they're getting everything wrong. By the end of the week, they've learned from that and actually they're, they're doing all right. What do you struggle with? Time is always a, is always a challenge. I think I've got, um, I'll always have a million and one ideas and some of them are utterly rubbish and that's fine. Um, but equally, there are probably some ideas that I've thought of probably utterly rubbish that I haven't really had the time to think and work through. So time's a big one and I think we all struggle with that. It's just the, pressure of the modern world it's um i also struggle with i have struggled with organizing so i have to teach myself to organize myself i was one of those students that started their dissertation well not dissertation actually i did that in pretty good time but started any sort of assignment or project the night before with a gallon of coffee and a load of pro plus to get you through the night to, and you and you got to the end of the day and you'd done it and it's that's that's my natural and I love a, the, the pressure of a deadline. It really gets you, gets you going. But I've had to teach myself to actually organize in advance. And now, actually, I'm, I'm almost, almost at the point where if there's a pressured deadline I and I, I'm not prepared for it, then I don't like that as much as I used to. Whereas before, I used to thrive off it. Um, it's probably old age or, or too many mistakes of doing everything last minute. <laughs> Taking a breath always helps. And even if that's like, um, if you're responding to something sort of late at night, I would never send it late at night. A, because I don't want the team to pick that up and then have a sleepless night. But B, and probably more importantly, after a good night's sleep, your perspectives sometimes change. And you might be sort of, so I might draft something and then delete it the following morning or change it completely. And it's that, it's time helps. Time helps just formulate thoughts. It helps um, overcome challenges and... Uh, and we don't have enough of it as a, as a species now, really. So leading a digital transformation, I think, of any organisation is difficult. But an organisation that's over 200 years old, that has, let's say, paper at the heart of who it is and what it does, must be even more challenging. So what would you say were the, or have been, or even are probably the, the best and the worst of that experience of driving that transformation? Um, so, so there's a there's a common misconception there that actually a lot of what we do is paper, and, and a lot of what we have done in kind of consumer business has been paper. But OS as a business has been has, has started its digital transformation in 1972. Um, uh, we've got probably one of the largest server rooms, which is just over there, which uh, houses petabytes of data. Petabyte is a huge amount of data. So if a byte was a grain of rice, a petabyte would be, I think it's twice the size of Manhattan, including all the buildings and people. So it just gives you a bit of a understanding. So we've got huge amounts of data that is digitally stored. We've got a very legacy product within a paper mapping, which is great still today for getting out on the kitchen table and really seeing a much broader kind of context than you'll ever see in a kind of five inch screen on a, on a phone. Um, but what we, the challenge that we had to do was to, a business that was very much built around the paper map, as in the consumer side, is how do we inject a bit more life and a, and, a, and a lot more technology into that business? Because if I think when I first started here, which was 2012, um, the iPhone had been out for, what, four years at that point, four or five years. Uh, and Google had got quite a big headway into actually mapping. And it was mapping, you know, Google Maps was the standard application that you had on every iPhone. And if you think just back five years from there, if you'd have done word association with the word map, people would have said audience survey. Five years later, you do word association with the word map and people said Google because we were probably later than we should have been to that digital um, party. So one of the very first things I did when I first started, actually development was, was, had, had kicked off, but it was to launch the first um, mobile application. 
So we had a pay-as-you-go type map application where you could download bits of mapping stored on your phone. Still, still active and still got some users of that today, although we are decommissioning it. Um, and that was kind of the first foray into mobile technology. And then start thinking around, okay, so you've got a paper map which has its benefits. It's a lot safer. It battery doesn't run out. You, you know, if you drop it in a puddle, it still works. Might be a bit damp. Um, and it's still, you know, we still encourage and work, work quite closely with Mountain Rescue to encourage everybody who's going out exploring, um, especially going off the beaten track, to have a paper mat with you because it can save your life. So it's still a central part of outdoor kit. But we've also got to recognize that actually the way people consume our products now is very much through smart devices, through um, principally through, through, through phones. And how do we therefore adapt as our customers' needs have changed. And that was a big journey that we went through. We, so the first application launched January 2013. Uh, immediately we started refactoring and recoding and doing all of the work to actually get to move that to the next level. And we recognized that it wasn't like a traditional product that you build it and then it's when you've, you've built it, you've had it produced and manufactured, it is done. This technology changes on a continual continual basis you know if you look at amazon are making something like 15 releases every second so that's the speed of change that is going through tech we're not quite at that level yet but we, we would do a release every on that on average every week two weeks um depends on what what, what you're developing but that, but that product is continually evolving so then taking that mobile application into what is today os maps uh, os maps was replacement for a very kind of older um, system which was not mobile based it was PC based but then we thought well hang on a second having something on a PC is great but actually that's not how most people consume it and you know the digital sort of progression moved then to mobile devices and it's like we need something on a on a on a device that is actually going to integrate with a PC so we use traditionally people use OS maps to plan on a PC because you've got a bigger screen it's easier to do um, slightly more functionality you did have a better processor in a PC much of a muchness now. Um, and then your phone is actually when you're doing. So how do you then transpose that same experience, that same, uh, the same data, the same routes that you created, so you can create a route on your PC and follow it on your phone. And so that was a, a lot of the kind of progression in terms of where OS Maps has got to. Um, so now actually that digital part of the business has overtaken from a commercial perspective, the paper mapping side of the business. So paper maps were a store of, of, of OS. We've been selling paper maps since 1791. That was the very first one. You could buy it for six guineas. It was quite a lot of money in those days. Um, and today it's uh, yeah, just over a tenner. You can get a map of, and that will give you well over a thousand adventures just on one sheet of paper. And if you know how to read it, it opens up the whole lot. Having that that interacts then with a digital device. So all of the maps now come with a mobile download. So you can then infect that onto your mobile phone. So we were looking for those symmetries between a physical product and a digital product. And how do we close that gap between the two? How do we enable the user to actually take that map, mapping data, to take that passport to adventure, to then actually have the adventure? And that's a lot of the kind of development work that we've been doing. So it's... um. It's, it's an evolution and it will continue to evolve. What's next, you know, is the Apple vision uh, gonna take off and is everybody gonna walk around with a headset on or is that gonna be embedded in a chip in a contact lens and, uh, you know, haptic technology, all of this uh, artificial intelligence, you know, we've got artificial intelligence embedded in everything we do. We, we use that for sort of machine learning, uh, for auto feature extraction out of photos. So we can take an aerial photo and create a map through from that. All of that is using AI techniques and tools. How does that play a part in the future of outdoor exploration? That's some of the, these are some of the sort of problems we're kind of toying around at the moment. If you think about the broader outdoor industry, what role AI can play and you know, how that can help us as an industry develop. I think, I think it's, it's a tool and we've got to recognise it's a tool. It's not the answer to everything and it's an, it's an industry at the moment that's totally unregulated. So over time, those regulations will come in and actually what we see today with things like ChatGPT, which is a great you know, text-based AI engine, um, great for cheating at your homework, but less, less good for actually solving real problems because you don't necessarily put your, have a text-generative response for what you're doing. You want something a little bit more intuitive. 
So we're kind of looking at all sorts of different options in terms of how that can help with things like route planning. Uh, so, you know, getting to the point where I'm here, I've got an hour, I've got this amount of kit, take me on an adventure and take me on a different adventure to the one you took me on last week or the week before, because actually I want to try and see something new. That could be a use of AI. So there's a whole raft of different pieces around here. I was talking to a colleague who's a cyclist and he was talking about actually how he used OS maps to work out the bend of a particular or the, the angle of the bend of a particular part on a time trial that it was doing. It's like this is road cycling. We're not kind of geared around road cycling traditionally. It's more off, we term off curb. So the big green spaces of Google. Um, and actually, then it kind of gets you thinking to actually, can you use AI techniques to give you pace notes like a rally driver used to have? So, you know, you were approaching a 90 degree hairpin, hairpin brace, 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 you know, <laughs> put your brake on now, <laughs> lean to your left or whatever. And, and can you give somebody pace notes as they're going through a cycling? So you don't have to think or concentrate on the physical map, but you're using mapping to actually deliver something to a customer that will make their experience better. In that case, a cycle race. So there's loads of different applications. If you understand and you empower the team to go off and think of new stuff and how, how they can develop a product that will serve their customer bases. That's something we do a lot with our development teams. So um, with our development teams, we'll give them some free time to rather than just code this, deliver that. Actually, take a bit of free time, look at the product, look at where technology is going and look at how you can apply that to the product in a way that actually, you know, go and work on your own stuff. And from there, we've had lots of augmented reality features. So the ability to actually just pop out a augmented reality sort of image of a route in with a full sort of 3D landscape through a mobile device that came from a developer just playing around with a new tool in Apple's AR kit and saying, how do I get, what can I do deliver with this? Similarly, 3D fly-throughs, the 3D height. So we've got height data that is captured every two meters on the ground. So that gives you a really, really accurate um, view of the terrain. So you get every little sort of rocky outcrop. So how do we take that height data and how do we take aerial imagery and can we mash the two together to create a very lifelike representation, digital representation of a 3D landscape in 3D? Can we then display that through augmented reality? Can we tell you what's on your horizon? All of this sort of stuff came from actually developers just having a bit of freedom to go and be creative with technology. And that's, there was lots more that we got wrong, believe you me. But you know, those are some of the successes that have come out from, from just giving people the empowerment to go out and solve problems. If you knew you weren't going to fail, what would you do differently? Spend more money, probably. <laughs> <laughs> where, though? Uh, where would I spend? So we have, we have a limited sort of level of resource. And there's only so much you can do with what you have. And actually, if we knew we were going to succeed, then we'd probably put a lot more resource into certain different areas. But having a team that can really play a field. So I talk quite a lot around, let's not be an under nines football team and just sort of move with the ball. Uh, actually, how do we take, how do we have our swim lanes? So we might have somebody, a team working on UX and design. We might have a team fixing bugs and we might have sort of several swim lanes sort of creating new features or new concepts and taking those out to market either in a prototype or or sort of within a product so i'm sort of a firm believer of actually how do we get our positions to play the field rather than my son's under nine's football team that generally follow the ball around and all hang out by the goal <laughs> he's got better now but yeah <laughs> so what's your favorite piece of outdoor gear my favorite piece of outdoor gear is probably my boots because a i've got i'm not going to tell you what they are um <laughs> oh they're scarp set of scarper walking boots so um they're waterproof they're incredibly comfortable they've um they've got a lot of memories they've got a lot of scars they've got a lot of sheep poo on the bottom and random stuff that probably don't want to really know but um yeah they 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 live in my van so i drive a van and i've got loads of stuff that i kind of live in there and they're the first thing that I always get out whenever i'm going outdoors so that's probably my one big bit of kit okay. my favorite bit of kit what about favourite bit of favourite bit of technology? Um, I mean, the iPhone stands up there just in terms of how it shifted and changed the market. Um, but that's too obvious an answer. I think um, from a software perspective, I think looking at some of the Silicon Valley tech that's actually come through, um, and I'm thinking here, people like Uber, Airbnb, where you've got a very simple bit of technology that has created not only 
an incredibly successful business, but has actually not done that with any assets. Has done that with literally using the power of the crowd, the power of people. And I think that's that 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 always amazes me in terms of actually how do we get. To that. I read a lot about this, so I can probably talk for days around those. But um, how do we um, how do we create something similar within the community of OS Maps users, for example? So for Anybody working in the sports and outdoor industry or that wants to, is there a book or a podcast or something that you would recommend that they, that they read? That you so one of the beauties of having an hour's commute to and from work every day is that I consume audio books like they're going out of fashion. So uh, I would say the first thing is get an Audible account. Be curious um, because if you if you're traveling any distance, it's it's uh, put it on if I go for a run through to if I go in the car. So um, what there's a uh, I like. I like technology books, but equally, the book that I would encourage people to read is um, How to Be Like Walt by Walter Isaacson, which is all about Walt Disney, but not necessarily a biography of Walt Disney, but more around some of the practices, some of the principles he had in. And there's a good one that we install throughout all of our development here, which is called Plusing the Experience. So how do I take something and how do I make it better? And how do I really make, and if you watch any old Disney film, I'm a lover of Disney. Um, kind of forced to be the past 10 years, but I was a lover of that, lover it before then. Um, but if you look at just some of the little micro interactions between the characters, the real detail that comes through, all of that is plusing the experience. And there's a really good story about a maid in a hotel and, uh, and, and Walt Disney's um, a friend that he took to Disney World for the first time and said, what did you think? And he goes, what was the best thing of your experience? He goes, it was actually the look on my little girl's face when we went back to the hotel room. It was like, what, do you not like the park? And it was like, well, no, it was to see what the maid had done with her dollies when she got back to the hotel room was like magical. And that was the maid plus in the experience. And I'm, I'm a big sort of lover of that. How do we make something that could be mundane and simple make you smile? Because if you smile, then you, the whole world smiles. What's the most valuable piece of advice you've ever received? Be brave. Be brave, be curious. Because if you're not brave, you won't ever try something new. You won't try anything different. And if you're not curious, you, you're not going to uncover what could be a, a great new thing or a great, it could be anything from a new hobby through to a new girlfriend to a, uh, to, you know, a new product to yeah, a new house. <laughs> Who gave you that advice? Uh, one of my oldest, uh, older bosses. Um, uh, we were setting up a corporate partnerships team within LV at the time. It was Frizzell at the time. And this was um, taking kind of a, a very traditional affinity model, but actually, can we do that across commercial businesses? So I remember having a conversation with the chief exec saying, people will never buy insurance from Tesco and the, the internet will never catch on. And we had all of these conversations and we said, right, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to be brave. We're going to try something different. And we effectively formed a self and uh, boss at the time, formed a corporate partnerships business within LV, which today is still there and is still a really important part of what they do. So I think that ability just to take a risk, don't be afraid of taking a risk. Um, fail. If, you've, if you're going to fail, try and fail quickly. That's always a good, yeah, don't be like Concord. It's cost you a lot of money every time you send it out. It's ne never made money. But actually fail quickly and, um, and learn and adapt. So if today was your last day here in your lovely office, what message would you give your team? Keep the passion. Always keep the passion because with the passion comes great things. Simple answer. <laughs> it's not, I hope. <laughs> and if you could give future leaders in the sports and outdoor industry three bits of advice. Three bits of advice. Um, Embrace failure. Find your passion, because everyone's different. Um, if you haven't read Simon Sinek's Why, then read it. Um, that will help you think about what your passion could be. Um, and collaborate. Collaborate with as many people as you can in your industry, in your business, and outside of your business, because we're never not, one person is not going to change the world, but together, actually, we stand a good chance of changing the world, getting people more active, getting people outside more. And if we get more people outside, they're going to need more kit. So that's always a good thing.
I think if you're in the industry, just recognize how privileged that is to be in an industry that is, you know, is, is a lot of people's sort of passion, a lot of people's sort of love. And, you know, you look across a lot of the brands that exist in the outdoor sector, actually, they're born from love. They're born from somebody who really has a problem but loves the outdoors. So there's not many industries. I mean, I said before that I'm from financial services. Nobody really loves financial services. I'd say it's a necessity rather than, you know, it's like I don't love gas. But, you know, actually, you're in an industry that you love. So hold, hold that passion. Don't lose that. If you want to get into the industry, it's, it, it can be a difficult industry to get into um, because people love it. And, you know, with, every, with any, anything that's got some passion behind it, then people want to be part of that. I think um, be a user. Understand how somebody is actually engaging with the outdoors think about actually how how is that working how's that not working and think about what you could bring and how you could make that work better so be curious be a customer and um write to lots of people uh because if you write to lots of people and you show that passion then you know i'm always looking for passion so if you've got passion write me a letter and you never know you might get a career in the outdoor sector Listening back, I know it's going to be very powerful because you've been very consistent in what you've been saying. So, so yeah, no, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. We love to read your feedback, so please leave your thoughts in the comments below. Thanks again for your support. See you soon, and don't forget to subscribe.